Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. Let's, uh, let's get into our, our message today. Today, we get to, to part three of a series that we're calling Saving a Nation. Uh, we're looking through the book of Esther. And uh, before we, we dig into this, I want to I talk a little bit of history to you. I'll try not to, to put you to sleep. When I, when I was in uh, my junior year in high school, I had a history teacher, and he talked like this, and it was right after lunch. All right, guys, so this is World War II. Hitler was a really bad guy. And uh, they did, and I'd fall asleep every class. One time I fell asleep, my head down like this. The bell rings. I wake up. I'm like, oh my goodness. I don't know what we did just for the last 47 minutes, however long it was. Even worse, I look down, not kidding you, a drool puddle about that big on the desk. It's like, ooh, well. I got to go. <laughs> so it sat there. I don't know who sat there next, but oh well. I'll try not to bore you today. Maybe I'll talk a little louder and, and maybe a little faster. But I just want to quick give you a little synopsis of where we're at here with the book of Esther. You've got King Xerxes, who's actually called Ahasuerus uh, in, the, in the Hebrew. It's easier for me to say Xerxes, so I've told you guys before, when, when, when we're talking about Xerxes and Ahasuerus, they're the same person. Xerxes is just his Greek name, and it's easier for me to say that when I preach, but I'll read it from the Bible. Anyways, uh, King Xerxes is the king of Persia. Uh, he has this big old party. Uh, for six months, mainly to discuss, uh, hey, let's go to war with Greece. What do you guys think about that? And they all get together and they have this great big party. And then right after that, they have a seven-day party to celebrate the six-month party that they just had uh, to plan that war. And uh, they all get together. And on the seventh day of this party, they're all you know drunk and falling over themselves. And, and Xerxes says, hey, Queen Vashti, my beautiful wife, why don't you come and show off your beauty? To my drunken buddies, and Vashti's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, King Xerxes, who is uh, known for his uh, flair for the dramatic and exuberance, uh, gets really ticked off and says, what should we do about this? So he gathers seven lawyers around him and says, uh, what should we do with, uh, with uh, Queen Vashti here? It's actually quite amazing that he doesn't kill her immediately for not doing what he said. But they say, here's the deal. We're going to depose her. She's not going to get to be queen anymore. And then make sure that we make this decree throughout your empire, which is a massive empire. Make sure we let all the women know that they are to follow everything that their husbands say. And if they decide to not do it, they are going to regret it. So men are in charge and you ladies are going to sit back and keep your yap shut as we do what we want to do. Again, do not say amen, men. You will be sleeping on the couch tonight. And so that's, that's kind of how it all started. She becomes deposed and uh, King Xerxes goes to war as far as we can tell. It doesn't say that in the book of Esther, uh, but it lines up with the timeline pretty correctly. He goes out to war, uh, loses to Greece, comes uh, back, and well, by golly, he's got no one to come home to because he deposed his wife. So he's like, oh, I'm so sad. What should, what should I do? He does have a harem. I don't know why none of them were any good. Maybe they were yesterday's duckies. 
VeggieTale fans, right? Right, remember that? Yeah, there we go. Someone laughed. Good. There, thank you for doing that for me. Um, anyways, so he's like, what should we do about this? So he gathers some more of his yes-men, and they're like, hey, let's have a who wants to be the next queen of Persia contest. And so they go ahead and do that, and they gather all the, uh, all the virgins of, of the empire over hundreds of them. And the plan was, here's the deal. They're all going to get beautified and look all good for you. They're going to spend a night with you. If you like them, you keep her. And she's the winner. And so they go through that. They do that. And uh, who wins, of course? Esther. That's why the book is named after her. Uh, but she is encouraged to, to enter into the contest by her uncle or by her cousin uh, who has taken her in. She, is, she's or, she was an orphan, and uh, her cousin Mordecai takes her in and says, "Hey, why don't you enter this contest and uh, let's, let's see what we can do." And, and Mordecai has her do this, and, and Mordecai cares very much for her. And so that's what ends up happening. Once she becomes king, or queen, sorry, she doesn't become king. Uh, once she becomes queen, uh, she, he, uh, Mordecai tells her, hey, listen, when, when this all happens, don't let them know you're Jewish. And that's a big part of the story. We, we discussed when we were talking about that. It's kind of a weird thing that he asked her, but there's a reason for all this. And he says, no, don't, don't tell them that you're Jewish or anything. Just kind of do this thing and just kind of move on with your life and do what you're doing. And she says, okay. And she follows everything she instructs, he instructs of her. And so once she becomes queen, he gets to kind of move up the ranks and he, he starts to become kind of, I mean, not like a national figure or anything, but he's able to stand what's called the king's, the, in, within the king's gate, which means he gets to hear various things that are going on and those kinds of things. And he hears of an assassination attempt on King Xerxes. And so he reports it to his cousin, uh, Queen Esther, and says, hey, I think this is going to be happening. They do an investigation. They find out that that's the case. And uh, they take out the two guys and they, they basically impale them on a stake and say, yeah, you don't get to do that. That's not how that should work. And all that, of course, is a foreshadowing of what is about to come in our, our story. But that's, that's where we're at. Uh, so here we are today in chapter three of Esther, in which the stage is set for Esther to save a nation um, as we are introduced to the protagonist, the enemy of our story here, the thorn, if you will. Remember, Esther's Jewish name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. And whenever the Bible has mentioned a myrtle, it's a flowering tree, by the way, if you're wondering what a myrtle is. It's as if it is coming out from the briar and thorns of this world. As I said, today we meet the thorn from which this myrtle will come out, uh, which this beauty will come out, even though it seems like a pretty ugly situation. Now, one more piece of history here before we start reading in the book of Esther. And I want to do this because I want you to understand uh, a correct view of Mordecai and who he is. You know, just because he's in the king's gate and he's doing all these things and he's understanding a little bit more and able to see a little bit more, it's not so much because he wanted to. It's not because, you know, he, he, he really wanted that position. He was prideful and like, I want to be a big tough guy. Really what it is, is he cares so much for Esther. He wants to have the ability to be as close as he can to her. And we saw that when she was going through the the beauty stuff to 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 have her night with King Xerxes, he would stand outside of that area of the palace, just making sure, hey, is everything good with Esther? Is everything good with Esther? So once she becomes queen, he still cares about that. So he's like, is everything good with Esther kind of thing? And that's part of the reason why he's there. So I want you to understand that. So um, 
as we see this, like I said, it's not necessarily that he cared about the position in and of itself that he had, but that it positioned him closer to Esther. And over the course of the next few weeks, we'll continue to see this kind of paternal love that Mordecai has for his orphan cousin, Esther. So real quick here, we're going to go back to the, uh, we're not going to go back in our Bibles. You don't have to do that, to go that far, but uh, we're going to go back to the story of, of Jacob and Esau all the way back then. Uh, if the kiddos, they're not up here, of course, but on Wednesday night, they actually just talked about Jacob and Esau and uh, Esau selling his birthright for a, a bowl of soup. Um, that's that that's that's a bummer. If it was lobster steak or chocolate, I could understand, but eh, bowl of stew, I don't know. But uh, he uh, he sells it, and, and there's always this tension between Jacob and Esau. Everything happens. You know, Esau foolishly sells that birthright for the stew. Jacob pulls off the deception with his blind father Isaac and ends up having to flee for his life. That was threatened by Esau. Uh, later, they would make amends, but the nations that their families became will always will always have tension. We'll always we always see this tension, especially within the Old Testament. Jacob, of course, his name becomes Israel, and he is the father of the Israelites. Uh, Esau uh, is considered Edom. So, whenever you see the nation of Edom, you're talking about the the ancestors of Esau, the people that fell from from his line. So they became the Edomites. Later, Esau would have a grandson by the name of Amalek, who also became a nation, and they would be called the Amalekites. The tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites gets stronger and stronger through the course of time. And in Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 through 16, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the Lord puts it down and says, There will be a time when I'm going to blot out this nation. I'm going to blot out these people, these Amalekites, because they have been so so bad to, uh, they've acted so foolishly and so bad to, to the Israelites. Now you fast forward about 500 years from that prophecy in Exodus, and the Israelites have an opportunity to wipe out the Amalekites under the first king of Israel, Saul, whom we saw in chapter 2 of Esther, is Mordecai's, Mordecai's a direct descendant of him. So through the line of, of time and, and those kinds of things, he is from the line of Saul. Now, 1 Samuel 15 records how the Lord spoke through Samuel, instructing King Saul to destroy all the Amalekites. Get rid of them all. God wants everyone wiped out. Rich, poor, young, old, man, woman, child, even all the animals. Everything needs to go. The Amalekites need to be blotted off of this earth. Now that sounds harsh, but we don't have time to go into it. But God comes out and says, listen, these guys have to, these guys have to be taken out. In short, Saul doesn't do it. He doesn't get the job done. He leaves a bunch of animals and their king, a guy named Agag, alive. After some time, Saul is punished by not being considered king in the eyes of God, uh, which, of course, those are the only eyes that matter in anything that we do. Uh, But God says, you're no longer king in my sight. And Samuel ends up having to kill Agag himself and chops him up into a bunch of little tiny pieces. Um, And no, they didn't eat them after that. That's not how the Israelites work. But he does kill them and chop them up in little tiny pieces. Um, But with that, I want you to see the names of these folks, the names of these nations. Of course, you had Israel, with which Jacob becomes the Israelites, Edom, the Edomites, Amalek, the Amalekites, 
So Agag, this is the fun one to say, the Agagites. <laughs> Popeye the sailor, right? Is that him, right? Anyways, the Agagites. So with all that said, everything in your head now, and I'm sure you've all remembered it, we'll have a test at the end and you'll all pass with flying colors. Esther chapter 3, starting at verse 1, look at there with me. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. When the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. All right. So, now, it, the Bible tells us that there was a command from the king that you were supposed to pay homage to, uh, to, to, this, to this Haman. Um, it, when, when it says that, there, there is an aspect there, but, but it's, it's more of like, what do you call it? Like a, uh, um, I wrote it down here, a common courtesy. Listen, when he comes by, you should do whatever it is that you normally do. You know, it'd be like us. Hey, when the president comes by, the governor comes by, whatever, you should shake their hand if they stick their hand out to shake it. You don't necessarily have to give them your baby to kiss, but hey, it's a common courtesy kind of thing. And so this is kind of what it was. So there was an order, there was a command there, but it was it was more of a common courtesy. Um so, so he, he does this and, you know, you got to pay this homage to him and you got to do these kinds of things. Um, but, but the, the second thing to see here is the reason for his, for Mordecai's refusal has nothing to do with pride or piety. Um, again, Mordecai doesn't care about Haman's position in all seriousness. The Bible would have told us if this was the case is that would be a major character flaw that would have a major impact on the plot of this story. If Mordecai was this prideful punk that really wanted Haman's position. It's also not a pie out of piety. He's not being asked to worship Haman. He's not like, I only worship God, so I won't bow down to Haman. That's not how it is. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that says they couldn't do that. There's nothing in the Bible that said, hey, when, when a king comes by, you can't bow to him. It's, it's, that's just showing respect. That's just being courteous. That's, that's just how it is. We're not, you know, you're, God understands you're not worshiping there. There's nothing in the word of God that says one can't respect those in positions of authority via bowing or technically what it what what they did in the Persian empire was they kissed them it was if you knew them very well and you were very close you kissed them on the lips and then if if you didn't know them as well it was a kiss on the cheek um so there's an aspect of bowing but but if you dig deeper into the actual Persian history it was it was actually a kiss on the cheek so it is uh it is as Mordecai told all the others he is a Jew and Haman is an Agagite 
a branch of the Amalekites. They're mortal enemies, and this isn't a simple Hatfield and McCoy type of family feud. It's not just, hey, he came around and shot a raccoon on my property, and then he took the raccoon and ate it, and I wanted to eat it, and it's nothing like that. I don't know what the actual Hatfield and McCoy story is, but anyways, since the days of Moses, God's desire was to blot out the Amalekites. We just read that in Exodus. Even if he wanted to fast forward to the New Testament, which, to be brutally honest with you, is a terribly incorrect way to study the Bible. But if you wanted to fast forward to the New Testament and think that Mordecai owes Haman respect and honor based on Romans 13.7, that's also incorrect. Outside of the position of parent friends, respect and honor isn't typically owed to a person simply because of their position or title. Specifically within this case in Esther, Haman has done nothing to which Mordecai is indebted to honor and respect him. If Haman extended the proverbial olive branch to Mordecai, then we may have something there. But what happens when Haman realizes that Mordecai isn't bowing to him? He gets very ticked off. He's filled with fury, as the Bible states. He's filled with fury. How dare you not bow to me? The king said, you're supposed to bow to me, and you're not doing it. And he is ticked off. How bad is it? How angry is, is Haman about this? Look at verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Well, that escalated rather quickly. <laughs> I'm really ticked off with you, Mordecai, but I can't just come after you. Instead, I'm going to saturate myself with a hatred towards your entire people, which was probably already stirring anyways because he is an Amalekite directly from the line of Agag. Listen, Haman doesn't fear the one true God of Mordecai, but he isn't an atheist, and as it was with most folks of that day, he wanted to get the advice of the gods, and we see this in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, based on what we just read in that verse, it sounds like they tossed these per, these, really what it is, is it's, uh, uh, it, it's clay, it's kind of like a clay dice, but it's not dice like we know it, it's got pictures and stuff on it. They toss these things, and, and you're going to want to remember that word per, by the way, if you, if you don't know that. But anyway, so they, they toss this, and it's, it's not that they're sitting there day after day for, for 12 months just tossing it. What they're doing is, is they toss it, and then they have some kind of rules on, okay, let's, let's see what the gods have to say about this. And, and they, they're, they're tossing this, trying to figure out what day should we make it that we would exterminate all the Jews. And so the day that came up, or the month that came up, was that 12 month, was the month of Adar, which does not line up with our calendar, if you're wondering. So it wasn't December. It was a few months after that. Our, our months are, are way off when it comes to the, the Jewish calendar, which is what they're going by here. Nisan and Adar are months within the Hebrew calendar. So... They have those regulations, and it comes up that on the 12th month of Jewish calendar, Adar, that's when they will annihilate the Jews, and that is 11 months away. Uh, now, there, that's quite a bit of time, 
But that is a lot of Jews that he needs to, to plan to kill, right? We got to get you some time here, so you got some time to figure this out and to plan to kill it. Uh, but, but that is not what is actually going on here. We've mentioned it many times. God may not be mentioned in this book by name, but his presence is all over this book. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So even though Mordecai has this hate-filled plan, this murderous plan, this genocidal plan, God is still in control. And he's like, you think you're doing this. It's me, though. I am there. I am the one that's making this happen. Listen, friends, God is not sitting there half asleep waiting to strike us down for doing dumb things. He is active in everything. It depends on you whether or not you fear God and follow God. Right now, it would be to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, having died on a cross to forgive you of your sins. If that's not you, then friends, you're just an unwitting pawn like, like Haman is. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're just an unwitting pawn in this thing called life, and God is continuing to move, and God is continuing to let you do the things that you do and pray to the things that you pray to and and worship the things that you worship and do whatever it is that you're doing. All the while, he's making everything work. He's connecting all the dots. He's making this happen and that happen, just like we saw with Haman. But we're unwitting to it if we don't know Jesus Christ. If that's not you... You're just, or if that is you, you're just an unwitting pawn like home. If it is you, though, if you know Jesus Christ, then you would be what we discussed on, on Wednesday night, for those of you who are here with us, a hoopernakau, right? Remember that word, a hoopernakau? More than a conqueror. You would be more than a conqueror. God has a plan for you. God has a design for you. You're not an unwitting pawn. You would seek after God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do here? But Haman is not that. Haman is, is an unwitting pawn in this, and he thinks he's going through with his plan, and everything is coming up roses here. we got 11 months to plan this and to figure this out. So Haman is, is not a fear of God. He's also not king. He's just a high-ranking official and will need permission from Xerxes to carry out this plan. Here's kind of the evidence that there wasn't really a command, like a, a, a set command to pay homage to Haman, as there would have been a penalty in place for breaking that command. So you can kind of look at it as it was probably more of a common courtesy, because if there really was like, like this, you better bow to him or else something's going to happen. It would have been set up, and, and it's not there. But like I said, if God's presence is throughout this book, then, then when Haman goes to Xerxes, Xerxes to the rescue, right? Xerxes to the rescue because God is in this book. Look at verse eight. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces in your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamad, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. 
Thanks a lot, Xerxes. <laughs> that didn't help at all. Not only does he say, yeah, you can do it. Here's my signet ring. In other words, here's my, like my stamp of my, my, my signature. It's as if I am literally saying this when he hands over that signet ring. Haman gets what he wants. And the typical way these things happen, half-truths and cash. Half-truths and cash. Is it true that the Jews were spread throughout the empire and technically they do have the Torah, which is significantly different from man-made laws? Yes. <laughs> that's the half-truth. Yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. They're all over the place. That's usually what happened with the Israelites. They would multiply like bunnies. You can ask the Egyptians. There were just like, 12 of them and their family members. Now all of a sudden there's like a bajillion of them. What are we going to do with all these people? And, and it, it, it happens within the Persian Empire. There's, just, there's a massive amount of Israelites all over the place. And they do. They follow the Torah. They follow the Torah the way it's supposed to be. And it's completely different from man-made laws. But they technically were not breaking the king's laws. All the Jews were not. They were not doing that. We can see that. They lived, through, they lived peacefully. Cyrus the Great liked them. Darius, uh, the father of, uh, well, technically he's not the father of, of, uh, of Xerxes. His, his, or no, yeah. Cyrus wasn't the father of Darius. Sorry about that. But his father, Darius, the father of Xerxes, he he cared about the Jews, and, and like I said, Xerxes kind of tolerates them. He doesn't like religion in general, but he's never really come against them because they don't really do what he's saying. In fact, it was pretty peaceful and normal for these Jews all up to this point. Then there's the money. That's a whole lot of money. Whole lot of money being spent here. There's some debate as to whether Haman was as wealthy as we're about to see, or if he thought he would be able to put the 10,000 of talents of silver into the treasury based on all the wealth from the slaughtered Jews. We're just going to kill all these people, and then we're going to have all this money. So that's where he comes from. But it, 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 based on what's written here, it sure does sound like Haman is very wealthy. How wealthy is he? Here's the number if you're wondering. A talent of silver at this time was 75 pounds, an American weight, not the English currency. 75 pounds per talent. That gives us a total of 750,000 pounds of silver, or 375 tons, if you're curious. Silver for the last week has been selling at around 24 bucks an ounce. An ounce. $24 an ounce, giving us a grand total of about $288 million in today's money. Here's $288 million, King Xerxes, so that I can kill these folks. Now, if you're wondering what that was back then, the Persian Empire was huge, massive. The, the biggest empire known to the world at that time. None, none had been bigger up to this point. It's, it's a massive, massive empire. But one nation kind of outside of it, who they fought, the Greece nation, the nation of Greece, their entire national treasury was 10,000 talents of silver at that time. Haman had an entire nation's treasury at his disposal to do this. Now, why so much money? 
Why is there so much money? First of all, this sounds very morbid, and I'm sure you guys don't think about this very often. Hopefully you don't. If you do, there's, there's counseling that can happen. But it costs money to kill people. <laughs> it just does. I hate to say it, but it does. Even, even if you didn't use weapons, you're going to have to pay the executioner. That's a lot of neck breaking and choking, however you would choose to do it. And it, it's a lot of work. So it costs a lot of money to do that. But more importantly, this is a lot of people. And guess what dead people don't do? At least outside of the United States, they don't. They don't pay taxes. <laughs> you don't have any money to get paid taxes. So the idea within Haman's head is, I have to convince King Xerxes that this is good. So I better provide the money because you're about to lose a ton of revenue because you're going to have a bunch of dead people. So he has this huge number and all these things happen and, and Haman offers that money and, and offers these half-truths and it works. But let's not give Haman too much credit. Xerxes is a bit of a buffoon, if you haven't noticed so far. At no time does Xerxes ask what laws all these people are breaking and what punishments are in place for breaking of those laws. He doesn't even ask. It seems like a lot of money. How many people are you planning on killing? That seems like a lot. Or the simplest of all questions. Who are these people? Who are they? No, he simply says the money and the people are for Haman to do as he likes. Either he writes off whatever amount Haman would need to kill all the Jews, or it is possible that he might as well keep the money offered as it would come into the treasury to simply go back out to fund the genocide. So he says the money is yours, the people are yours, to do whatever you want with. Upon approval... Amy gets right to work to inform the entire empire in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own town and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now listen, the Persians had an incredible courier system. It, I mean, it, it might have been better than the mail system today. They did very good with that. And this decree would have made it to the outer parts of the empire easily within two weeks tops. They were very quick. They were very good. However, the people within the capital and nearby surrounding areas would have received it the next day. Or as we can see here, the 14th day of the first month, which is Nisan. Anybody want to take a shot in the dark as to what holiday is on the 14th day of Nisan? Passover. Passover. So everybody within the capital and the the areas within that that could get it within 24 hours, they're getting together to celebrate the freedom at one point that they had from Egypt. 
and they're getting a letter saying, hey, you've got 11 months to live now. Have fun celebrating. You're going to go down. Death is coming. Death is coming. The people in the capital are completely stunned by such an action from the government. Many probably had Jewish neighbors and friends. And now this decree is sent for no real good reason. <laughs> they have no clue what just happened here. What in the world? I've been living next door to, to Havish for so long, and, and now he's going to go away? How did this work? What happened here? Everybody's thrown into confusion. However, Haman and Xerxes sent down to drink cool as cucumbers. Plan is going as we thought. The nonchalant attitude after ordering the genocide of an entire nation, friends, is quite disturbing. Right? Hopefully it is. If not, we got some problems. Listen, friends, what we just saw here were two people with polar opposite reactions to each other. Mordecai, a man of God, simply refused to show homage. You can tell me all you want to, King, that I'm supposed to do this. But listen, we are enemies. They are enemies to God. This has been happening. This is how it works. Haman, not a man of God, becomes infuriated and murderous. Listen, friends, let's remind ourselves of some more ancient history. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. When the Lord approaches Cain about his jealousy and murderous intent to kill his brother Abel, the Lord says to him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Jesus, when speaking of murder, says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Haman didn't fear God. Probably didn't really know God. However, for those who know God, we are held to a much higher standard. We must not allow our evil thoughts to ever take over. As, as God said to Cain, listen, sin crouches at your door. It is contrary to you. It is opposite of who you are. And you must overrule it. You must overcome that sin that's in your life. And all the way back then with Cain, and we see it throughout history. We see it through the Old Testament, even within the New Testament. Of course, we've, we've seen it in world history, this hatred that bubbles inside of people and then overflows into murderous, genocidal intents. And, and you may sit here and think, well, that's not me. But is it? Do we sit there and think about it every now and then? I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, we can get annoyed with our politicians and get irritated by a lot of the things that they're doing and the difficulties that stand before us and what's going on. And that's, I mean, just within the state of Minnesota. I'm about to call us Minifornia. But guess what? We are people of God. We are people of the Spirit. 
And we have the ability to overcome the rule of sin in our lives because we have the blood of Christ and we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't do that, and if we don't understand those things and grab every single thought and submit it to Christ, we're going to turn out like Haman. And Haman was a pagan. (laughs) He didn't care about God. How much worse is it for us who know God, who know his peace, who know his salvation, to just throw it away. Because we refuse to grab onto the Holy Spirit and overcome the sin and the temptations that are in our lives. Like I said, friends, we can, we can be ticked off. We can dislike a lot of the things that are going on. But we have to make sure that we submit our thoughts, that we submit everything to the power of God, to the will of God, and say, Lord, I need you to take this. I've got a lot of anger right now. I've got a lot of frustration. Because it can turn on you like that. I remember when we first moved here. <laughs> Steve and I would get here and said, I don't know. Maybe we'll move here. But this seems like a dateline town. <laughs> Do you know what a Dateline town is? (laughs) Dateline has these shows every now and then where they talk about people that have been murdered. (laughs) In the quiet, sleepy town of St. James, Minnesota, nothing but a train horn every now and then. But there was murder bubbling under the surface. (laughs) It's like, maybe we'll move here. I don't know. (laughs) We did, and we're alive so far after 11 years almost here. So praise God for that. (laughs) But there is that thing where if you don't overcome that sin and that temptation that's in your life, I'll tell you what, the last thing I think anybody wants to hear is, I never would have thought that person would have done that. Whatever it is. Murder. (laughs) But anything. Theft. Drug addiction, beating a spouse, beating your kids. If we don't take even the littlest bit of of sin, of temptation that's in our lives and say, Lord, take it out of me, it can grow and it can fester pretty quickly. Why don't you stand with me today? As we close today's message with prayer, there's a lot that happens in history that we see, and we can we can see the the writing on the wall with so many things, but it's usually hindsight, right? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. So, as people of the Spirit. We need to be more proactive than that. Whatever's in our lives that we can see, we know is going to eat at us. We know it's going to make it difficult for us. We know it could kill us. We need to take it and we need to throw it out. We need to say, Lord, I need your cleansing power. I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my mind. I need you to change my thoughts. So today I want to give you that opportunity today just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, you're talking to me. You're talking to me, Lord. 
Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your kids. Think about you right now. Allow the Holy Spirit to just show you, listen, you've got some hatred here. You've got some unchecked anger here. You've got some thoughts here that you're letting get out of hand. And nobody may know it right now, but there's going to come a time when it just might come to light. That's nah, not going to be good for anybody. 